Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion, and I'm a service design principal now based in Dublin, Ireland. In this episode, we caught up with the brilliant Patrick Quattlebaum, co-author of the fantastic new Rosenfeld media book, Orchestrating Experiences. Patrick is founder of Studio PQ and former managing director of the service design consultancy Adaptive Path before its acquisition, after of which he was the head of service design and senior director of design at Capital One. So don't worry, if you haven't read the book yet, there's no spoilers in this podcast, just brilliant entrees to the book itself. There's a lot to go through in this episode, so let's jump straight into the call. Patrick Quattlebaum, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Hello. Delighted to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So where are you coming from today? I'm in Atlanta, Georgia in the States. Nice. So I've been following your career for um, a number of years while you were at Adaptive Path and since got acquired by Capital One, obviously. But let's uh, go back to the very start and tell me a little bit how you got into design. Well, uh, I got into design relatively late, I guess. It was it was a second career. My original passion and degree was in English literature. I studied playwriting and uh, film, and I uh, had a specialty in uh, Irish and British literature. Nice. Um, so, so you being in Dublin, I've, I've been there many times. I've, I've been there on Bloomsday. I've walked the Joyce Path. The canal. Uh, yeah, Samuel exactly. Samuel Beckett. Yeah, so I've done that kind of romantic, uh, you know, went went past Beckett's uh, birthplace, crazy stuff like that. Uh, so that was original passion. I also uh, ran a business with my uh, family business for a while, which is kind of where I realized in retrospect, I got a lot of on-the-job training of what it's like to provide a service. And then I wanted a greater challenge and was looking back, uh, going to uh, to graduate school uh, in the late 90s, and I, I narrowed it down to urban design and the type of design I guess I do now. Ironically, one of the things that I that made me go the direction I did was uh, I didn't know if I wanted to deal with the politics uh, in urban design, but uh, <laughs> po- you can't avoid politics. I learned, later learned. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so I, I went to the Georgia Institute of Technology here in Atlanta in a program that focused on it was the college was literature, communication, and culture. And so I, I thought that was a good gateway drug for me to get into design. Um, it was a really interesting program because it focused on a lot of theory of how design and technology impact culture and, and vice versa. And so that was my entree into it. And uh, almost 20 years later, my career has changed several times, but I'm, I'm glad I made that choice. Yeah, nice. So at the moment you're um, set up Studio PQ, which yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about Studio PQ. Yeah, well, it's me. <laughs> yeah. Um, after spending a couple of years at Capital One after we were acquired, um, I really missed consulting and kind of the variety that that comes with it. And even inside of Capital One, I consulted with our international businesses. So I, I spent a lot of time in London and Birmingham and uh, also in Toronto. Um, helping those parts of the organization 
mature their design capabilities. But when I, I decided to move uh, back east from San Francisco and just spend a year experimenting and not really worrying about what was next, but just working with interesting people and doing interesting work, finishing the book. But as that year has turned into, uh, I've gone past that that year, um, what I'm starting to collect here in Atlanta is a group of really interesting people um, that I work with a lot. And so later this year, I'll be announcing a new evolution of what I'm doing. So um, I can't talk about it yet, but... Uh, in the future. Uh, in the future. But essentially what I've been focusing on in my individual practice, which is um, what I would like to involve more people in, is focusing on more strategic design with organizations, but in, in doing so helping organizations build capabilities um, beyond digital product design. Um, and so a lot of the work has been kind of a combination of management consulting to design leaders and their peers or uh, bosses to help broaden their definition of design and what it can bring to the organization. And then doing side-by-side uh, projects where I and others teach their employees how to use tools out of uh, the service design toolkit, and especially how to work more collaboratively within their their organization and the benefits of, of doing that. And so that's that, that's been the thread I've been pulling and uh, and and want to to do more and have a bigger impact than I can have on my own. Yeah. So introduce and improve the capability internally. So how does that differ from say what you were doing with? Adaptive Path and then Capital One, you know, going in as a as a big consultancy versus now, like how's how's it shaped your approach and has has it differed? In some ways, it's similar. Uh, the time I was at Adaptive Path, we were really moving more and more to service design, but also had a lot of great partner companies who really wanted us to help them learn how to do uh, these approaches beyond just doing training or coming to our conferences, but actually working side by side. So a lot of the projects that I did at Adaptive Path were of that nature. And then as we moved into Capital One, while the Adaptive Path was really well known, you were only talking about 18 designers in a company of tens of thousands of people. So so for example, in, in working with the international parts of the business, it's a similar model to what I'm doing now is is coming in and, and having two or three people partner with the organization and uh, work with, in some cases, you know, business agile teams and mm. showing the benefits of having designers as part of those teams, as part of the brain trust of what the strategy for a service can be, about the benefits of looking, even if they're organized around product the benefits of looking at things in terms of end-to-end experiences and how to balance when you collaborate and when you work independently um, so that you can create something bigger than any one of those teams that has like a little piece of the puzzle, how they can work better together to, to create a, a more harmonious experience across all those different touch yeah. points and channels. So, Which is a fantastic segue into today's topic, which is uh, breaking down tribalism in the design community. And as we were chatting before, and I explained, this was one of the premises for me creating and founding This Is HCD, to really understand how we can work across you know, multiple disciplines, such as product management and UX and service design and experience designers. And, and I can only imagine what it's like being on the internal side of an organization who's trying to hire a consultancy. And we're like, no, I'm a UXer. 
now I'm an interaction designer and so forth. So that tribalism in the design community is something that I'm really passionate about trying to trying to break down a little bit more and understand a little bit better. But maybe uh, I could get your thoughts on that. And like, do you think tribalism is bad? Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, I to be honest, I go back and forth on that. Um, mm. And I think as with anything, there's pros and cons to being extremely passionate about a part of what we call design and and wanting to passionately put your skills behind it to help it grow in the world. And it's sometimes easy to define something by what it's not than, than by what it is. Mm. And so I think that leads to the, well, yeah, that's what you do, but what we're really doing over here. But if you zoom out a little bit, a lot of this is about language. And even within, take service design, for example, there's a good debate going on about what even that really means, right? <laughs> and and on, you know, I think it's interesting from my my viewpoint, you know, between say Europe and the US, there's this overlapping circles of in the US, I think their user experience meant something bigger than just UX slash UI in the beginning. And having been around for as long as I, I have, I can say that I, you know, I that label I felt fit me really well for a very long time. In Europe, service design means something bigger than broader than maybe some people in the U.S. think of it as. Yeah. And, and then you have design thinking coming in as an interesting term that's loaded with um, very problematic if you're a designer, and but very great for organizations in terms of you know getting more people interested in what design can can do for the organization. I mean, I think one of the problems with the the tribes is. There's so much overlap that I think it's fair to say, say for something like the service design network to be working really hard to define what service design is as a practice and starting certification. And it's like, if you're not inside of that circle, then you can't do those things. And how you used to think about what you do within UX or, or another discipline, um, we do those things now is, is a reaction that, that a lot of people can have, have yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not a, like I said, it's so great that there's so much passion to grow the influence of design in the world and define it more and more sharply. Um, but if people lose the spirit of playing with one another towards very similar goals, then uh, I think that no one will get to achieve what they're hoping to achieve by investing so much in those, their individual tribes. Yeah, exactly. So to sum up, it's like a, a misalignment of goals effectively is the negative side of tribalism is, is, is kind of my understanding of it but how do you think tribalism can affect culture you know i feel for leadership within organizations when i work with them because if you think of yourself think of someone who's um high up in an organization and is responsible for its you know its ultimate success and where the company spends time their heads have to spin on a daily basis about <laughs> Agile, Lean, Six Sigma, UX, service design, design thinking. <laughs> yeah. None of these things, you know, majority of the people in, in large organizations probably have MBAs or come from a like financial or even engineering background. All of these things probably seem useful and distracting at the same time. And I would say the downside is when these groups don't talk to one another. So I spend a lot of time in my consulting looking to connect those dots, especially, you know, focusing a lot on service design. I focus a lot on the lean 
Six Sigma crowd within organizations mm. and talk shop and talk about their work and how to balance, well, both within design and within process design and service design, you're looking at sequencing. And so that partnership of really what is the flow that you're trying to create for employees and customers to engage and play their roles in the service is something that you have to have a lot of dialogue around. And uh, in fact, coming up with ways to partner together and design things together rather than being in these parallel worlds where process designers are creating their process maps and service designers are creating blueprints and maybe in UX are creating task flows. You know, all of these things are really trying to solve the same problem, hmm. um, but you end up solving it three different three different, different ways. ways. Yeah. And all but you need to look at it from all those different angles at the same time as well. And so the only way to do that is to start looking at how do you break down these lines that are between these groups and start working together towards the problem you're trying to solve and and taking the best out of everyone's toolkits to, yeah. to do that. I know at the very start of the book, there's a, there's a really, it was semi-contentious. I, when the book was released, I saw a lot of people tweeting about um, you know service design and CX and UX, and you're saying, hey, look, it's not about that. It's about getting the outcomes, which yeah. which really resonated, as I said, like at the top of the of the episode, like getting towards and breaking down that tribalism. But what I really like about the book, and this is not a big sales pitch for the book, I wouldn't say this if I didn't mean it, but it's an excellent uh, reference book for um, for people who are trying to get into the industry. Trying to learn, like um, you know, more about orchestrating experiences. It's, it's such a fantastic combination of of two words. But what I really like is about the the pragmatic workshop activities that are related to each stage of the the journey. But what I um, wanted to ask you was, when you're looking in tribalism, the hierarchy. You know, we're trying to flatten the hierarchy. Who decides what workshop to do and when? Is it, the, is it the service designer or is it the product manager? And, and it, it's, it's a, it's a yeah. common, what do you think? Well, obviously it depends partly on that organization. And I would say in many organizations in, in the U.S., since that's what I'm most familiar with, yeah. what I see is certainly service design and, and to some degree still you know, more strategic design that's beyond just designing for the interface. Hmm. In many organizations, it's not an expectation of design. It's where design is is looking to sell internally. This is something that we can offer that will make things better. Yeah. And so in the end, if you were looking to do one of these workshops within your organization, it would certainly be partnering with the person who has the most influence in ensuring that the workshop isn't an academic exercise, but it actually is going to lead to action. So in some organizations, like one I'm working with now, they have owners of specific customer journeys. So that would be the partner to work with and say, and in most organizations, what I recommend is that that person should have service design or design uh, process technology, change management, like key partners that are their advisors, and then showing how these workshops can help that journey. Or if you're working with a product owner who may be pulling together other product owners beyond just what they own to start looking at the bigger picture, they need to be with you and encouraging everyone that this is worth their time to contribute. And that so you're in service of that person who ultimately 
likely has the budget, the influence to ensure that, again, that that workshop is part of a flow towards making things and putting them out in the world rather than, you know, a feel-good experience where everyone got together and thought through, you know, what are our touch points and then nothing ever happened after, after that. I guess what I'm hearing there, it's really interesting because not always can we be brought into an organization and looking at that 10x visibility of the entire ecosystem and the systems thinking type of view. Sometimes right. we're, we're brought in at like 3x or 2x or 4x, wherever it is we're hovering around and we're trying to do an ecosystem within an ecosystem and it's maybe like the, the brother and sister of the projects that are working parallel with that. So you think it's a service design person that really should be up to championing those other projects to, to get alignment in what's possible? Yes. I mean, that's a big message in the book is, you know, regardless if you're a designer, if you see the value and really can take it upon yourself to help get people zooming out even one more level than they normally do and to work together and you can help facilitate that you know, instigate it, facilitate it. That is such a valuable skill within organizations where often people kind of have their heads down on their area of responsibility. So for example, a few years ago, I was working with an organization that had taken the journey that's from first touch and perhaps earlier of buying a product or certain or engaging in a service through 90 or 120 days after becoming a customer but they had taken that journey and chopped it up across four different teams so that one team literally owned, when you push the button to say, yep, I want that product through when it is delivered to you. Now, that's essentially, and then setting them up as separate business agile teams to then go fast. So my team was brought in to work with that team and they were kind of, a, they were in the middle of the journey. So the first thing I did was held a workshop where we brought in the other teams, yeah. uh, not the entire teams, but the, the leaders of those teams. And, and we said, bring a couple more people from your team. And we did essentially walk through what the objectives that the team that we were doing the project with were asked to do. But we said, look, when we start to look at this, what's going to happen is we're going to challenge these divisions that you've made. For example, you have a team looking at onboarding, but onboarding really begins when you're first interacting with the customer. You can be smart about introducing them to your company and getting information so that the thing that you now call onboarding is something that really can spread out across the entire journey. So we don't want to take these divisions and and work within those constraints. Um, And especially when we go out to learn from customers about their experiences, they're, we're not going to say, okay, so let's start with where you push this button. Like, that's not how we're yeah. going to engage with them. We're going to learn things that will be valuable to you and your plans. So in that workshop, what we did was we, we said, look, you need, to, um, you need to start thinking of this as one experience. So let's do a few exercises to build some hypotheses around that. So we built a hypothesis, you know, said, what's a hypothesis of what is the actual journey? What are the key touch points? You're four separate teams, but let's workshop some common experience principles. Like, how are you making decisions? What is the nature of the types of experiences you want to create for people? And then we talk about, okay, how do we engage you going forward? You know, we invited them, some of them to come into the research um, so they could learn firsthand. They were in every workshop after that. And, And what it ended up doing was allowed them to 
understand that they, while they were organized in these four teams, they were essentially one team, each with a focus. Yeah, I would have reorganized them, but that, that was a recommendation. But in doing the project, that they could think of it more holistically and that they each improved their strategies, their backlogs, um, et cetera, through um, working more collaboratively but letting this one team kind of take the lead on on looking at that bigger yeah. that bigger picture. That's a really interesting um, approach, and it's definitely something that I've experienced before. Like not being able to change the world, but actually just being able to change what's in front of you and getting other people and other teams to be part of that conversation is really important. But another piece in the book that I found really valuable, Patrick, was the the workshopping of the experience principles. And I know from my own experience over the years, it's very easy to fall into the category of just getting simplicity and ease of use and, and so forth out of those workshops. So let's walk through a little bit more of the steps that um, you outline in the book and how you can avoid that from happening. Sure. And I should note that obviously the context is really important, with especially with experience principles. Yeah. Um, now in the book, what we're, um, the chapter is written as part of a section that's that's going through a flow in which it's assumed that you are leveraging insights from understanding the needs of whoever you're designing for, customers, employees, or both, and likely qualitative research. Yeah. Um, and it assumes also that your organization has some articulation of what its brand is for, for good or bad. Mm. Um, you see, you see good brand principles. You see, you see poor ones. I've seen brand teams put together what they call design principles. Um, yeah. How do they differ brand design and experience principles? <laughs> well, again, it's design principles. I think there's probably something in the book about this, but design principles and experience principles to some degree can often be used interchangeably. I'm a big fan and Chris is a big fan of experience principles because it feels bigger than what designers use to make design decisions. Um, so when you put the word design in front of principles, what I've found is it can lead to them not being embraced by non-designers. It creates an um, exclusivity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the spirit of it is is that we're all making decisions that result in experiences for customers, and we're steward of those experiences. So what are the guiding principles that we use to make decisions, inspire ideas, do detailed work on, on making the things that the tangible and intangible things that people interact with? And, and that, that the hope is that by all following those principles that you, you mitigate the risk of, of being schizophrenic. Yeah. Now, that's the same of the same goal of brand, right? Yeah, uh, I would say in in general, and these are broad strokes. The from a branding sense, uh, often that's coming from an. I see this more and more. Not as I see more interesting approaches being taken on the branding world, but traditionally it's more of an inside out view. So, mm. how do we want to be seen by the world? It often starts and has a should have a, a good tie to the culture of the organization, so that you can actually live into that brand. While experience principles in the way that we talk about them are taking that view of as an organization, here is how we want to be seen and how we hope to interact with people and putting with that, you know, here's how people, what they need when they interact with you and the type of experiences that they are hoping to have and that the experience principles then look to 
how do we unite these viewpoints yeah. into a common set of principles? Now, you know, where you started with the question around, you know, simple, easy to use, often what doing these workshops or even just beginning to help people understand the need for experience principles is to list many of those out and say, these are heuristics. You know, what we provide in the service or product is is much more complex than what they should have to worry about. Uh, that should be part of the magic of designing something well. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we wouldn't want to create something that is difficult to use unless, you know, you're, <laughs> that's, you, there's the dark arts some people, yeah, some people <laughs> use in some ways. Yeah. But I, I think it's like, when we're thinking about our experience principles, what we need to think about is putting more language around it and concreteness to say what really matters in the experiences we're looking to provide. And if reducing complexity is an important thing in our organization for everyone to remember because they often lean towards you know complexity, then let's find a way to communicate that and, and create a principle that is contextual to us so that when we say something like you know um you know we need to be a guide for someone in the experience yeah the language that goes with that is critical because you you want them to be rememberable you don't have people to remember an entire paragraph so you want something in naming the principle that's rememberable but the language that goes with that is really important and then showing examples of what that is or would be like yeah is very important and then working with parts of the organization to say if you are in the call center and it's a conversation or you're you're designing a product and it's unassisted interacting with an interface going even deeper and and additional details and criteria to apply those principles you know within that that context within the larger context of the organization. Yeah, excellent. So that's the, it's, you know, I say like, of course, there's these heuristics, like in working with companies, it's like there are a set of common heuristics that make services good in most circumstances. But as soon as you start to think about your organization and what you're trying to accomplish and what your capabilities are, and you're looking at who you're designing for and their needs, what you should start to find is, your specific language and formula for doing that. So, yeah. you know, there's, you know, in, in film, there's lots of romantic comedies and there's a formula to them, mm. but they, they're not all literally the same, right? And yeah. so, and there's good ones and bad ones. And, you know, you have to really think about how you do the things that often are successful, but then what is what you're doing, making it unique and differentiated and, and something that really reflects yeah. who you are and who you're and the needs of the people that you're, you're trying to meet. Absolutely. And it also helps streamline the process of when an idea enters the conversation in the business to gain that alignment as in like, is this something that we do? Does this, does this fit our principles? Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's the, you know, the, the real power of them is being used. You know, they're a tool. And they can be wielded in many different circumstances. So like uh, finishing up in an engagement right now where my team is, you know, there's a working with the journey team that already has a, a backlog. Yeah. Um, and not at the product feature level, but more at the saga epic level of like big things you're thinking about doing that would be across a, a large, complicated journey. And so in working with them, one of the things that we're doing right now is we work with them to come up with principles in addition to their 
their brand principles and they mm. were doing a, a, a deep analysis of that backlog and saying, okay, here's where you have great alignment with the principles. Here's where we're seeing less alignment and then making recommendations about where they should be investing or not investing, how to better sequence some of the things that they're doing, um, some of the other work we've done in filling in some of the gaps. But the principles are something that we're using as a, a litmus test for for everything that they're thinking about. And the nice thing about it is, is that we these principles were made with them based off of research in which they were involved in the research directly. And so they really feel ownership of them yeah. rather than as outsiders helping them, like these are what the consultants, you know, gave us. Yeah, um, they, they, their fingerprints are all over them and that's going to help them um, Get adopted. remain viable and be adopted and be, yeah, you know, they're being adopted in the work that we're doing and that's always a sign that you're, you're on the right track. Yeah, excellent. And when we're coming towards the end of the, the conversation, Patrick, um, and I don't know if you, you've listened to some of the other episodes, but we always ask uh, three questions towards the end of the episode just to get to know the, the person a little bit better. So um, hopefully I'm not putting you in the spot too much here, but I'm going to ask you, <laughs> what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? Oh, so many, so many. I, w- I would say always get better at... Uh, my stage of my career, I'm really trying to get better and better at working with higher levels of the organization and influencing and really being better at identifying and listening to and empathizing with everything that these leaders have to juggle and balance and how complex uh, the decisions they have to make and all the different people that they're that are provide, trying to provide them input yeah. And that that I'm one of those people. Yeah, true. <laughs> and so I feel for, I feel fortunate in my career that I'm I'm at a stage where I'm consulting at very high levels in organization. I'm still learning how to be better at that and I'm I'm naturally an introvert so it's something that I'm, you know, I have to get better at the uh, the skills of using 30 minutes with an executive over lunch and being on and and yeah. having clear objectives and and all of those things. So I'm, I try to get better and and better at that. <laughs> by just jumping in the deep end. <laughs> That's a great answer. So the second question is, what is the one thing in the industry that you wish you'd be able to banish? UX slash <laughs> UI. Um, I think uh, this is, you can tell me if it's true outside of the US, but in the I, US... I'm going through this at the moment, uh, Patrick, in, in Ireland and Europe, it's UX, UI is what they know. is re- It's really interaction design, but they call it user experience. So sorry to cut across here. Go on. Uh, yeah, it's uh, that combination has led to, in some ways, has made it very difficult for practitioners to grow into being uh, having a greater strategic influence in their their organizations. And uh, all the different types of design we do is extremely valuable. And uh, if you are amazing at detailed interaction design and uh, very effective at using research and should be partnering with a, say, a product owner to not just uh, execute the backlog, but helping them define it and the strategies that are leading to why you're doing what you're doing. We need more of you too. It is difficult to do both in organizations uh, because of the way they're run and how few Mm. designers there are. And so, you know, from what I see, the UI kind of anchors a lot of designers and they have to make a choice. So I see designers and interaction designers is what I would call them as well, 
who will leave the design team and go to research teams in order to have more influence over yeah. product strategy. And I think that's unfortunate. So that's what comes to mind. But I, I think that conflation of those two different things are uh, unfortunately means the, the the roles, when you look at what people are doing often, it's it's more UI focused than, yeah. than some people would like to do. And for the people that focus on that, it's probably less of a, of a barrier. Nice. And the last question is, what is the message you'd give to emerging design talent for the future? Get a variety of, of experience. And that could be inside of an organization, that could be outside of an organization, and um, explore, you know, going back to where we started the discussion, explore all those different tribes. Yeah. Um, and not just within the design world. Uh, you know, for example, if your your background is, say, in interaction design, and you normally swim in circles of the IXDA or maybe mm. human-computer interaction, go to service design meetups. Mm. Um, go to customer experience meetups. Go to, I spent a lot of time uh, a few years ago just spending a lot of time with business analysts. I was just interested in how they look at the world and yeah. how we could work better together and speaking at a couple of their events and writing a, a blog post for a a blog that focuses on that community, you know, get a feel for how everybody approaches pr solving problems. Because as you move deeper into your career, and the more that companies are wanting to be more collaborative, mm. knowing what your core skills are, and working on your strengths, which is what you should always do, everyone has superpowers. But the more you can understand who you're working with, how they look at the world, um, how you can solve problems with them, how you can be the babblefish yeah. within your organization. That is an incredibly valuable thing you can bring to an organization in helping connect those dots. And, and like I said, often it's about empathy for others that you work with and understanding mm. their mindset and really and understanding the words that they're they're using yeah. <laughs> and how they connect to what you're trying to do. Um, so that that would be my advice. In addition to whatever type of design you do and your passion for it and getting better and better at that, spend some time looking at that bigger picture and understanding who your collaborators are and find ways to get better and better at collaborating with them. Excellent. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. If people want to find you online, um, how can they do that? You can find me if you type in studiopiku.com. That'll send you to a page about me uh, in the book. And uh, I'm on the LinkedIn and Twitter, PT Quattlebaum. And uh, those are the places you can find me first. And We'll drop all those links into the, into the show notes as well. Patrick, thanks so much for your time. Great. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.